Hi, this is Jason Horlack, and welcome to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on The Probiotic Life. Welcome, welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Today on the show, we are going to talk all about prebiotics, probiotics, um, and gut dysbiosis, all that sort of stuff with Dr. Jason Horolak. He is He heads up probioticadvisor.com. And he has done his PhD in dysbiosis of irritable bowels and how to change that using herbs and pre and probiotics. So if you're interested in specific pre and probiotics, this is a good um, episode to listen to. What I like about Jason is he's actually a naturopath and he has an apothecary as well. So he knows his way around the herbs. But before we get into it, I'd love to share with you a song from one of our listeners. You might have remembered I mentioned, um, and the offer still stands, if you want to contribute to The Probiotic Life, share with us one of your songs. Uh, and if it fits in with the the vibe of the podcast, we'll play it. We'll give you a shout out. And uh, yeah, it just adds to the biodiversity of the podcast. So one of our, lis- our listeners emailed me, Samara Jade. Now, she sent me this awesome song called The Church of Fermentation. It's really cool. It, it just makes me smile every time I hear it. It's just a, a cheeky little fun song about fermentation um, and how basically how it takes over your life. Um, I can definitely relate to that because my wife is always like, do you think we can like try and uh, com- amalgamate all these bottles and things that you have and just put them like a bit more contained. So I totally understand that. Samara, thanks for sharing uh, this song with us. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play a little, like a one minute excerpt of the song and then we'll play the full song after the episode, after the interview with Dr. Jason. So here is a little sample of the song. I hope you enjoy it. It's really fun. Uh, It makes me just want to get up and dance around. And then we'll get into the interview with Dr. Jason Horolak. Here we go. If there are things that no longer serve you, you can let them decompose. Or you can put them in a bottle and watch as it turns around and grows into Something far superior and digestible in the end. Let's give thanks to the microorganisms for making their brilliant amends. 
From the fungi to the yeast To the bacteria so divine After all who are those holy ones That turn water into wine We must honor those life processes That lead to transformation And bow down in the church of fermentation And bow down in the church of fermentation If you like that then go and listen to the whole song at the end of the episode and you'll probably like the whole album. So uh, go and support Samara Jade on Bandcamp. We've got the link in the show notes. And now on to the interview with Dr. Jason Horalak. Today's guest is a leading clinician, researcher and lecturer in the area of probiotics. He is well regarded in the probiotics community worldwide and has authored many papers on the microbiome, the GI tract, and pre and probiotics. He's the lead researcher for probioticadvisor.com and a professor here in Australia and the US. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jason Horolak. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And did I miss anything? Because I know I abbreviated that um, a little bit. You've, you've done a lot of things, haven't you? I have. <laughs> the last 20 years have been pretty busy, but no, I think you've, you've covered the main bits. Yes. Uh, what I was really interested in too is the fact that you are focused on um, naturopathy as well as doing the research. So I'd love to talk to, to you about that, but let's let's go back a little bit into uh, your story, how you got to where you are today and what sort of started you on this path of uh probiotics and researching probiotics? Okay. I think from a a gut health probiotic perspective, that was, I was essentially almost through my my undergraduate training, which was in naturopathy. I was studying at Southern Cross University. I was doing the Bachelor of Naturopathy, which was a four-year program. And I was Last semester, my fourth year, there's a lecture um, by by you know one, one of the, the head of one of the staff talking about uh, dis- intestinal dysbiosis, intestinal permeability, and 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 probiotics, and it just really blew my mind, really, in terms of where the research was at. And this was back in 1999. So, you know, compared to now, <laughs> there, there was very little research done, but there was, it was it was very exciting research. And immediately afterwards, I went up and approached him and said, hey, I'm really keen to do research in this area. Um, and because I was essentially about to finish my, my um, bachelor, I said, can I do my honors degree in this area and hopefully flow on to do my PhD? And that's exactly what I did. So we, we went on and developed... Um, so the honors project was looking at at a population that that's well known to have a dysbiosis or an imbalanced gut ecosystem. Back at that time point, um, now there's a lot of disease conditions we associate with with um, altered gut microbiota. But back in the late '90s, it was really irritable bowel syndrome was one of the the conditions that was most uh, well characterized with a, an altered ecosystem. So we chose that that population to work with, and we started looking at it, interventions that could alter that ecosystem. So probiotics were obviously top of the list, but also prebiotics and, and even herbal medicines as well. And and I think my my PhD flowed on from honors in that way, and, and essentially my whole research career has, has flowed on from there, as well as my clinical clinical career too. Um, looking at the gut microbiota and agents that can beneficially alter this ecosystem and then agents that can detrimentally alter that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So you so you really um, sort of had that, you were studying in uh, naturopathy and moved on because you, f- you saw um, 
something something there, something that was exciting and and on the cutting edge of research. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it, it was it was that way. I mean, for for me, my health problems were always lung related. Being you know, having asthma from I think probably two and a half or three years of age, that was always my weak area. And and my, for my first few years of naturopathic training, that was still my area of of, of research where I was delving into literature, um, both traditional and and um, research literature, looking at ways I could potentially help <laughs> with with that mm. and other people with that. But it was really that that lecture that. Um, pivotal time point for me really did change it and um god i, I still find amazing amount of pleasure reading <laughs> probiotic research papers and cut microbiota research papers even now so i'm glad i chose what i did because not everyone's as lucky to choose a topic for their phd that they one find absolutely fascinating to love even 20 years on and i'm lucky that i did mm-hmm. and and uh from other interviews, I can tell that you're really passionate about what you're doing. So I'm I'm interested to to hear what are you, uh, what sort of uh, where are you at now in terms of the the research, the technology that we have to understand what's going on in the microbiome and the GI tract. Yeah, and this is what the bit has been a brilliant shift in in that period of time that I've been researching because back in the late. 90s and and going going backward in time in terms of all the papers we could have access to then they were using uh, essentially old technology or we'd see it as old now although at that time it was the gold standard which was culturing to to see what was in the gut in terms of from a bacterial perspective and around that time it started to be known that that culturing or there were hints in the literature that culturing was a was a poor way of, of assessing what was there and and for those of you who aren't familiar with it culturing is essentially where in, in this Example where we take a fecal specimen and we we take a little sample and we spray it onto a petri dish and we would see what would grow and then we'd sort of count it and we'd put it give it different food sources and different growing conditions and we'd try to to get an idea of what species were present. Uh, we now know that that technique only picks up maybe in some people less than a third of the species that are present in people's guts. So it was a very um, crude tool to assess microbiota health and so i've been been lucky enough to have been part of this this process where that that shift occurred in technology so now we use dna technology so essentially we're looking for bits of um uh, something called 16s rrna that that all bacteria have and that's unique per per genus and we can actually look at the level of those um the proportion of that that rna in someone's stool and work out and match it to the reference library so we can actually take account of species that we didn't know existed 15 or 20 years ago. And that change in technology is really what is, is why the, the, the gut microbiota research world is booming. Because when we made that shift and we could see what was there, we could start seeing associations. We could start seeing the impact of changes in diet, um, medication use on the microbiota in ways that we had no idea about before. Mm-hmm. And, and so just to, to go a little bit more into that, with this um, new sequencing, you're basically getting bits of RNA, is that right? And and yeah. and cataloging them or, or matching them against the catalog that you already have and saying, okay, we know that this sort of these sort of microbes are in this sample. 
yeah, you can see it as having like a unique little code. And then we just have to match that code to our reference library. And even if we don't even have a name for it, it might be SS2 slash one is what it's called in the library. We mm. can still match it and go, okay, well, you've got 0.2% SS2 slash one. And then then we're constantly naming new species that have that. I think there's about two. Last time I looked, this was a paper from 2014 or something. They isolated another 250 species we didn't know existed in the past decade in our guts. You know, so it, it, it is really amazing. So it, it's it's been a, a pretty amazing time to be involved with this area. Um, and, and it's it's going to boom even more because you go back to that time and there were, you know, a few dozen researchers around the world looking at the gut market bought it. Now there are thousands of researchers around the world. Mm. So it means like we're about to, it's already grown exponentially, but that's, you know, you could see that expanding far more beyond that even. Mm. So, so in this journey um, of the last 20 years for you, uh, is there any moments that have really sort of been like a revelation for you or an aha moment or something like, wow, I never knew that this, um, the GI tract or, or the microbiome was like this? There, there'd be a few because at that early time point, we were looking at, at the gut microbiota and its relationship to a range of gut conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, um, celiac disease, there was a few conditions that the literature was was discussing, you know, altered gut microbiota and um, disease states, but they were primarily gut. And there was really, there were some pretty pivotal papers from the mid-2000s onwards that suggested that the microbiota was important for metabolism and, and, and obesity, which was pretty mind-blowing because we wouldn't have guessed that, you know, five or 10 years before. And then more recently, linking uh, altered gut microbiota with, with increased risk of depression or anxiety, um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, and the list is expanding well and truly at, at, a, at a frantic pace because we do now have the technology to match and and test it in greater degree of um, accuracy to see to see what sort of connections there might be. So that's an ever expanding list, but it really was some of those ones of looking at in you know, metabolism and I'd say mood were probably the two areas that I wouldn't have guessed that the microbiota would have been involved with with alterations in. In the early mm-hmm. days. Yeah. So, the, you know, um, if you hear anything about the microbiome these days, it's like, yeah, it can alter your mood. Um, do you want to share with us a little bit about how that works? What's the pathway for altering your mood? They're still working that out. <laughs> but there's been some pivotal, pretty pivotal papers. There was one in 2016 where they had a group of, of um, rats and then they exposed them or essentially introduced them. <laughs> to eat some obese people's or sort of depressed people's poo or or happy people's poo mm, mm-hmm. and wanted to see what impact it would actually have on their mood and on their brain neurotransmitters, et cetera. And when they had a depressed person's poo, they became depressed and their mm. brain chemistry actually shifted. Now, this is pretty phenomenal because they haven't done anything besides giving them some some obese or some depressed people's poo. That's it. Um, and you might go, okay, maybe they just didn't like getting um, – people's poo and that's probably a fair enough um, observation yep. but they took some some poo from healthy happy people and the rats did not get depressed when exposed to that and mm. it didn't change their mm. chemistry and it didn't increase their their body-wide inflammation like it did from de- from depressed people so I, I think that was a really pivotal paper showing that this is actually can be causative um in certain scenarios and there's probably a few mechanisms by which it's occurring. I think inflammation is one of the key ones that mm. I think one of the, the, the takeaways I always try to get my patients to to get take on board is that their their ecosystem, their microbiome is either contributing to inflammation in their body 
or it's decreasing inflammation in their body. And that's just not in your gut, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that that depression is actually has an inflammatory component. And here we've got a, a driver of that inflammation in their system. So that altered ecosystem in the gut actually causes body-wide inflammation, which can actually alter neurotransmitters. And that's certainly one way, it, 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 and probably the, probably the pivotal way in which it's occurring. But I think there's other aspects to this too, in terms of, um, I mentioned before that, that inflammatory capacity of gut bacteria, that if you have a certain ecosystem type, you're more prone to getting uh, gut damage or, or in, increased intestinal permeability, which means you can get more pro-inflammatory bacterial products coming through that way. And certain bacterial populations produce anti-inflammatory compounds. And if they're not there, we're getting less of those coming in there that are potentially altering um, neurotransmitter synthesis, for example, because when our system is inflamed, we actually produce less serotonin, that sort of happy chemical. Mm -hmm. So anything that's sort of driving that inflammation will actually have an impact there. Isn't that interesting? You know, there's there's so much there in terms of uh, inflammation, and we we hear about yeah. anti-inflammatories. Um, there's there's food that can be um, anti-inflammatory, but there's also the the um, the microbes that can help yeah. with that too. Is that right? That yeah, and that's one of those huge takeaways. I'm hoping people who listen to this podcast will, will take away too, is that depending on the balance of your, of your ecosystem, it will either be driving inflammation or toning down or attenuating inflammation in your system. And that's really got to do a lot with with what you eat primarily. But there's other factors too in terms of sleep and exercise and um, medication use. But, mm. but what you eat, essentially what you feed your microbes and what microbes are fed and which ones aren't fed, I'd say is, is one of the pivotal factors there. Yeah. You know, on this journey of the probiotic life, um, we've, we've – we talk a lot about soil health as well and how um, yeah. human health and soil health are connected. And in fact, if we want to look after ourselves, we need to look after the soil. And so we've sort of taken that path of going and looking at regenerative agriculture and, you know, organic farming and that sort of stuff. Um, but it's, it's interesting how it's so connected. And I can attest to, you know, even just feeling stressed, it upsets my gut because, you yeah. know, it's obviously um, dumping... I guess cortisol or something in there. Um, you, you could probably ex- explain that a little bit more, but ha- but how much um, everything that we do it actually affects our microbiome. Yeah, and some of the the connections between stress and dysbiosis, so like a, a altered ecosystem that that is you know sort of primed to contribute to a disease state or to to ill health, might be a way of just seeing it. Um, goes back a fair ways as well, and we know for a fair while that. Exposure to stress will tend to decrease levels of what we'd often see as beneficial anti-inflammatory microbes in the gut. And some of this research was done back when they sent you know Soviet cosmonauts into space. And they looked at their levels of lactobacilli, um, one of the, the sort of you know often seen as a key healthful genera in people's guts, and before and after and after the flight it decreased dramatically. And other similar sort of animal experiments where they expose them to huge amounts of stress and their beneficial bug count decreases too. And and other research showing showing sort of the opposite, the increase in in, in more pathogenic or pro-inflammatory microbes with exposure to um, norepinephrine, which is one of those sort of stress hormones mm. that, that's released. Mm-hmm. Which works essentially as, as a food source for those these pro-inflammatory microbes. So their population goes up, our beneficial microbes go down. Um, plus, you might have other aspects of, of a lowered immune, immune response and altered um, gut 
transit time too. So for some people, they get stressed, they get constipated. So it slows everything right down. And then that has an impact on microbial populations. Other people, it speeds it up when they get anxious and transit time speeds up dramatically. And that has an impact on gut populations as well. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And and what I've heard you mention a couple of times and heard you talk about is feeding the microbes, not just adding probiotics, right? So, so you want yeah. to feed the microbes. Yeah, and I think this is something that, that's been really clear over the last, I'd say, probably 15 plus years is the, the importance and the, well, there's probably two aspects. One is the, the almost the temporary nature of, of, of uh, well, probiotics are, are essentially visitors, that they just temporarily visit your gut. And they can do some really cool things while they're visiting, but they don't permanently stick stay there, permanently colonize, whether that be from fermented foods or, or probiotic supplements, um, with, with the odd exception, but 99% of the time that's the case. Um, so there's been a lot of focus on using d- dietary changes and prebiotics to encourage shifts in your own ecosystem, your own individual unique ecosystems. You're trying to feed up in indigenous populations mm-hmm. rather than just trying to put some some visitors in there for a short period of time and going, now let's see what we can do to make this ecosystem healthier longer term. And and that's really got to do with with feeding the species that we want to feed. And and prebiotics, uh, prebiotic is a you know a selectively fermented substrate. So it only one or a limited number of beneficial species can actually use it as a food source. So it's like if you had a, a garden bed and, and you could throw some fertilizer that only your vegetables would use, but the weeds could not. It's mm-hmm. a bit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really what the research has told us around prebiotics. And by using prebiotics, things like um, oligofructose, inulin, galacto-oligosaccharides, and lactulose being three of the sort of best research groups of, of, of prebiotics, you can make some significant positive shifts in your ecosystem in terms of increased levels of those sort of anti-inflammatory gut healing species and a decrease in levels of the pathogens or, or weeds that we don't want that much of. Mm-hmm. So so when you're talking about um, inulin or um, uh, FOS or wh- whatever, yeah. are, you, uh, are you more focused on isolating those out of foods or incorporating foods that have those in there? I tend to try to aim for both. Okay. And long term using food, but sometimes in the short term, um, just to ensure a consistency of dose to make sure they're getting enough on a daily basis to, to provide the desired shift, I'll, I'll do it through supplemental form. Uh, the good thing about prebiotics is they'll work fine either way. You'll get, in fact, I, you'd arguably get better results with the food source because you're not getting just the FOS. You're also getting other soluble fibers and other polyphenols, other compounds in those same plant foods that are also microbiota nourishing at the same time as getting the FOS rather than an isolated supplement, for example. Um, but as I said, initially, I'm often just, I'm using the isolated supplement because uh, we're can guarantee can guarantee that people are going to be able to take that teaspoon of that where they may not be able to eat, you know, three cups of or a cup and a half of legumes daily, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. where where that might be key at that initial time point um, to to make the desired shifts. When I look at their microbiota, going okay, all right, these species are low, underrepresented; these ones are too high. We can make these changes to diet and do these prebiotics. But then, as I said, long term, I want people to to essentially use lifestyle and diet to keep that ecosystem healthy and robust and diverse. Mm-hmm. This is interesting, um, Jason. Uh, I find it um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because you are a clinician and a researcher and uh, focus on on um, naturopathy as well. So I'd be interested to, to hear how your mindset 
in from your um, uh, naturopathy training has sort of led you through um, the way that you um, administer probiotics and the way you do research? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly that one of the key con- there's a few key concepts in in, in naturopathy medicine. One is um, we call it the therapeutic spectrum, but we try to choose agents that are um, on one end of the, the spectrum, the ones that are least likely to cause harm, least likely to have side effects, most likely to be um, nourishing and have ancillary health benefits first before we move along towards the more um, potent, more side effects, more specific and narrow agents. So I think that's been an underlying um, concept that has really impacted the way I've, I've done research and certainly the way that I, I practice in, in clinic. And the other aspect is is treat the cause. So as a clinician, we're, we, we try to dig deep to find out what the cause of event was and then do what we can to try to bring balance. And, and a lot of this has got to do with with changes to like that gut ecosystem and whilst I, uh, some of the, the tools that we use like like probiotics and and um, can work very well to help shift symptoms around etc I think that trying to make more more deeper changes to that ecosystem require changes in, in, in lifestyle and diet and I suppose that's the other aspect of, of natural medicine is that, is that we're trying to work as much as we can through um, lifestyle and diet to make shifts. And I suppose that has really flowed on to, to the research that I have done is looking at um, ways we can we can support that microbiota to be as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. And and how has this uh, impacted your lifestyle and diet? Yeah, quite a bit. Because <laughs> I can't help but look at every meal and think, okay, what species am I feeding today with this this food? Am I making sure I'm getting enough resistant starches, um, soluble fibers, and polyphenols, for example, to make sure that my butyrate producing bacteria are well fed and bifid bacteria are well looked after, my acromanzi are fed. So I am constantly looking at that. And, mm-hmm. and even you know, what I, I live in Tasmania these days and, and I try to get away in winter because I actually prefer warmer climbs, at least for, for snippets of time. <laughs> and I went to the, the, to, to Sri Lanka um, just a few months back. It's a lovely, warm, tropical place where they have these amazing purple dragon fruit. And I can't help but think of the acromanzia, which is a gut species that I'm, I'm feeding when I'm eating that red dragon fruit. Mm-hmm. So I'd say mm-hmm. it, it's, it's actually infiltrated through my, my choices quite dramatically. Even when I'm getting not enough sleep, I'm thinking, ah, uh, because I've Sometimes I'm prone to overworking. And, okay, what impact is this going to have on my microbiota? Not good. It's going to decrease diversity. I have to make sure I get, try to aim for an average of seven hours of sleep a night. So, so hugely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, what would you recommend? You know, like I don't think everybody is going to go and get a, uh, a U-biome uh, test. But in if we want to just sort of head in the general direction, what, what are sort of some recommendations that you would give everybody? Yeah, so so one of the, the benefits of doing a microbiome assessment is you can see exactly where you're at. But I I, I agree that not everyone, you know, unless there's a, a problem with your health or you're worried about a problem with your health, I don't think you necessarily have to go down that path. And I think there are some things we can do to be very proactive to look after that ecosystem mm-hmm. without looking at the individual nuances of your your ecosystem. And, and I've sort of touched around some of those areas, but we know that that I'd say getting seven hours of sleep. Plus, a night is important. Getting moderate amounts of exercise is important for, for, for a diversity perspective um, that too much exercise or too little tend to have negative impacts on the gut ecosystem. And then it's it's really about eating predominantly plant-based, 
and a diversity of plant foods and diversity of plant colors. This we know is the best way of, of, of keeping your, your, your gut ecosystem diverse and well-nourished as well, because you think it's, it's really the, the, the indigestible components of our food that feed the clonic microbiome. That's mm. the key thing to remember. So it's not, you know, a chunk of steak doesn't really feed much, but, you know, a bowl of um, black beans with onion and garlic that feeds a lot because <laughs> in that black beans, you're getting resistant starch, you're getting um, a range of soluble fibers, you're getting oligosaccharides, and you're getting the black polyphenol compounds. Mm. So you're feeding a whole bunch of different microbes with with that food. So I think I think that's really what it comes down to is we, we know that, that people need a greater um, variety of different sort of plant foods, have a greater diversity of species present in their gut. And diversity, um, as it is with many ecosystems ty- types, we know is, is key for gut health as well. Mm, interesting. Uh, do you have anything to do with the Human Microbiome Project? Are you, are you... Bar, bar reading the papers? No. <laughs> no okay. Uh, yeah, uh, very, very interesting, obviously. Um, and I'm just fascinated by, by um, I guess, I haven't read too many studies, but the, what, I, what I've read of about people, uh, indigenous people and their microbiome and how yeah. they obviously um, most of the time are, are less stressed than uh, sort of the Western culture and they eat a variety, a, a real variety of foods basically straight off the ground. They do. Their, their fiber intake is absolutely massive mm. in general. Um, and the variety of, of, of plant foods I might eat, like, you know, 100 species of plant foods versus us that eat <laughs> far less than that. Um, and, and you're right, they're getting environmental microbe exposure too that we don't tend to have. So I think it's – we know that, that from a diversity perspective, the, the, the ecosystem health of hunter-gatherer society is far, far greater than ours. And diet is certainly a huge component of that, but also the, the lack of antibiotic exposure, mm. the lack of C-section birth, and, and the lack of bottle feeding also contributes to that too because we know that all three of those last ones I mentioned have a, essentially negative shifts or negative consequences on the, 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 the microbiome. So if you take those out of the, the equation, it means that, that um, each generation is being seeded by my parents would have a really diverse, healthy ecosystem, whereas for Westerners, essentially each generation of Westerner tends to have a less diverse, arguably less healthy ecosystem that they get passed on to the next generation. Because we, reality is we can only pass on what microbes we have. Mm. Um, and if you only have 80 species, that's the most you can pass on. But then every course of antibiotics you take may well limit that diversity to some degree. The dietary choices you make long term, particularly the Western, you know, the, the SAD diet, the standard Australian diet that tends to be low in fiber, low in polyphenols, low in, in microbiota food sources, essentially followed long term will will diminish diversity of that gut too. So it's not surprising that that in Western nations we're seeing a, such an increase in, in a range of chronic diseases that we now see in microbiota as being um, a, a key modifier of Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that leads me to um, wonder about the environmental factors as well. You know, like um, where you you live and what the the activities that you do. Um, I remember seeing Dr. Robin Chutkin going down to the river and actually smearing mud all over herself. You know, just to sort of increase that um, diversity. And I wonder where is the balance, and you know, where where is it taking it too far? I think there's a fair bit of leeway there when it comes to particularly when it comes to like nature exposure um, and, and being out in the garden. I think there's the more we do that, I think the healthier 
we are in many ways, including microbiotics, like we're eating, you know, food that that's fresh, vital, and 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 has little bits of microbes. They're not going to permanently grow in your gut soil-based ones that are offer care of your garden, but they're they're just going to contribute to, I suppose, the balance that we've always had because we've always been exposed to those those microbes up until recently when we started getting much more sort of. Um, microbiologically dead food sources. Um, there, there may be more issues if you're pushing the bounds with, you know, fecal exposures <laughs> to, to, yeah. uh, from other species or, yeah. or other people. Um, I'd say that's where there's the, oh, I mean, there's there's potential hope as well as potential challenges that come with that. And I mean, I just, someone flagged a paper for me the other, other week that was looking at um, Japanese you know, hot hot baths where they're not using chlorine in, and there's actually a passing of microbes between people in those sort of hot tubs, mm-hmm. um, and in a you know safe sort of way. But it's it's just interesting, and yet yet for those of us who live in a place that all of our um, you know our water is chlorinated, our we swim in chlorinated water, etc. We we miss that capacity of what's called um, horizontal transmission. So vertical transmission of microbes is like mom and dad to the next generation. Mm. Um, horizontal is okay. Where do we get microbes later on in our life? And we used to have a fair bit of, of horizontal transmission from our exposure in nature. You know, drinking creek water that that other people would have been bathing in upstream and potentially pooing in upstream. <laughs> and if those people were 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 sick with with like a diarrhea pathogen, well, that's not so good. But if they had healthy ecosystem, then we were we were actually getting some of those microbes in that way too. And these days we don't get much. Mm. of that horizontal transmission. So there are, you know, so I think that idea of, of rewilding and <laughs> getting out there and getting into nature will help with that exposure even in, um as a, but I said, when it comes to getting you know human fecal exposure, you've got to be more cautious about the, the source of said exposure. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, what you mentioned about the, the Japanese uh, reminded me of, I practice Korean natural farming um, and in this style of farming, they they do a bunch of microbial preparations. One of them is similar to compost. It's called indigenous microorganisms. Okay. And um, they in Korea, they actually bathe in it. So they, they open up the pile, they lie inside the pile, um, and it gets – I've tried it. I tried it in my backyard. I tried, um, yeah. got up to I think it was like 50 degrees Celsius – in there. Wow. So you can only stay in there for like 20, 30 minutes max. Yeah. And, you know, um, and obviously it's like a sauna, you're sweating it out. But apparently what I've been told is that um, all your pores are opening up and all these microbes are actually uh, getting into your skin as well. Um, and I guess if you're selecting by creating the compost, right, or well, it's IMO, that there's not going to be any pathogens in there. I, th- I think skin... Our, our intact skin and a healthy intact gut and a healthy intact gut ecosystem is used to dealing with with low amounts of pathogens without too much okay. issue. So I wouldn't be so worried about that. I mean, if someone had you know horrible eczema and they're they're you know heaps of open skin wounds, and I think that would be a lot probably there'd be a greater risk, and that may be more of a theoretical risk, and because you know I don't know what microbes are there, but mm. otherwise I I. I think it's a pretty funky <laughs> thing to actually do. And, and to just engage with, with gardening in that way is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And to engage with, you know, improving your soil fertility, et cetera, in that mm-hmm. way. So, Jason, uh, let's let's jump over a little bit. So what, um, what research are you actually doing at the moment? Um, and maybe share with us a little bit, because uh, you're in, in Hobart, but you travel to the States quite a lot. What, what sort of work are you actually doing? You're doing a variety of things. 
Yeah, these days it's it's mostly teaching work and it's mostly being a clinician. So I lecture at, at University of Tasmania where I um, coordinate their evidence-based complementary medicine program, which is a postgraduate program designed for health professionals to make them um, more critical and educated consumers of, of essentially complementary medicine or, or natural natural medicine and to delve into the research and make them just more critical um Increase the critical capacity to deal to engage with research and how to critique it, etc. Um, and then also work off and on semester off, semester on at University of Western States, where I, I teach the gastrointestinal imbalances unit in their 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 master degree of, of functional medicine and nutrition program, which is really looking at some of these these concepts that we're talking about today in much greater depth. Mm-hmm. Um, but on top of that, I, I work in a clinician. Um, uh, two and a half days days per week. I think it probably if I ever add, add up the hours, maybe even three, um, which gives me a chance to to put things into practice, which I think is is brilliant because mm-hmm. you get a chance to engage with the research, and then go. So I think keep on top to help your patients get the best best care possible. I think that's the brilliant thing is is you're sort of keeping up with with research into um, investigatory techniques like you know microbiota assessment, and then research in terms of how we shift things and research on probiotics about using them as tools and how herbal medicines alter the ecosystem. It's been it's brilliant to, to sort of keep on top of all those things. It's at least as best as I can. Um, and then actually use use these, these the, the new evidence on on patients and improve patient outcomes. Mm-hmm. So so you're actually using your patients um, yeah, like in a in a clinical trial? Uh, I've got some involvement with the odd clinical trial in the last couple of years, but this is mostly just clinical practice. And I think it's, it's really about the, some of the concept of, of evidence-based medicine is that we, we look, delve into the research evidence and we, you know, um, engage with it and critique it. And then those that are proven to be efficacious and safe, we, we can take and use into our practice. So for me, it's around that of, of being at the, the forefront of keeping up with research. And then it really means we, we can combine the best new treatments with the, the best old treatments to get the best outcome mm-hmm. for our patients. Mm-hmm. And, and any anything, any sort of commonalities that you're seeing at the moment, things that are standing out to you as you're treating your patients? It's a good question. Um, these days, my, my clinical practice is, is almost entirely gut got focused um perhaps not surprisingly given how much time i've spent delving into this area that that's what i but i these days only attract um i think the degree of of shifts to that to the microbiota or microbiome i think is is the thing that sort of runs runs through but i still find because i do do microbiota assessment for the majority of patients that it's still a bit like opening up a a christmas present every time i get a new result in because i'm like really curious (laughs) what it's going to be like and how this might impact their their presenting complaint to me so they might be presenting with chronic fatigue and some gut symptoms and i might have some hypotheses about what's going on um about that ecosystem but then when we open it up like ah look at that this thing is out of balance these got way too many pro-inflammatory microbes this is the areas we need to work on um, specifically, mm-hmm. so I'd, yes. So, so for the layperson who thinks, okay, well, I just need to have some more fermented food, or I don't know, some sauerkraut or whatever. Is there anything that you find that people are think they're helping themselves, but actually, it's not, it's not very helpful or, or actually detrimental? Yeah, yeah, there is, and and. and there's certainly things I see in my practice, and typically some of the the restrict restrictive dietary regimes that are becoming more commonplace and popular over mm-hmm. the last last 
five plus years. So I, I would put things that, the dietary dietary protocols that that restrict plant foods. So they cut out all grains, they cut out all legumes, um, cut out fruit. Those are the, the 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 sort of dietary programs where we see the biggest negative consequences on the the gut microbiota. I mean, there's there's lots of issues with standard Western diet, but that's people where they're often starting starting with that, and then they're often going on to these some of these restricted diets, and then we actually see a a decreased diversity of their ecosystem, um, decreased levels of beneficial bacteria in their gut, and this is one of the things that that people are often doing it because they think it's going to be beneficial for them, not aware of the potential negative consequences um, on their gut ecosystem because some of those things don't manifest as, as they acute symptoms. They manifest you know years down the road when you're uh, can only eat five foods now, but you still eat like you know hundreds of foods without getting symptoms. Mm-hmm. But because you've you've done a significant amount of damage to your gut ecosystem, that um, I think one of the consequences I see clinically is is that decreased. Um, capacity to eat a broad food again when you want to, to move out, out, out of that very limited dietary regime. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've done research into uh, sugars in the gut. And when you said fruit, I, I know a lot of people are saying I'm not going to have um, certain kinds of fruit or whatever because of the sugar in it. What what um, has your research found in that? Yeah, so I think the challenge here is, is that people, uh, some people have made this They've tied in the negative research on Coca-Cola and the soft drinks that are high in, you know, fructose corn syrup, and they made the assumption because because an apple might contain, in theory, similar amounts of, of sugar as you know a certain proportion of a, of a soft drink that it must have the same effect. And this is where I think the big leap um, has has come that it's meant that that people that yeah listen I think there are major issues with with eating isolated fructose and drinking soft drinks. I think there's no doubt about that, but we can't make this link loop. Um, leap, that's the word I'm after, sorry, to say that that any fruit that contains higher amounts of fructose is problematic because that's clearly not the case. And even the research that has looked at put, putting people on, on high fructose diets from whole fruit doesn't associate any negative metabolic outcomes at all, none, versus if they had just that same amount of stuff from soft drinks, yeah, they would have metabolic negative outcomes from that because fruit, you're getting polyphenols, you're getting pectins, gums, mucilages, you know, whole range of soluble fibers, you know, uh, a quite, it's, it's on a whole different package, which means your your system deals with it so differently. Um, and you're feeding and nourishing a range of microbes mm-hmm. and, 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 and as well as keeping your bowel working well, I think there's something special about the fiber package you get in fruit that, that keeps bowels working better than fiber we tend to get in, in vegetables or, or grains or elsewhere. Um, it's been my clinical observation with that too. So I think sometimes people are, I, I think, Biomeats don't drink soft drinks, don't drink isolated fructose <laughs> syrup. You know, I think that makes total sense health-wise. But mm-hmm. I, I still strongly suggest and personally do eat a considerable amount of fruit daily. Hell, I've managed to, to put in, just looking at my garden right now, and I think, I think I've put in over 80 fruit trees in my back, oh, back wow. quarter-acre block. So it's very, very packed with, with fruit trees. Um, and because I think it's, uh, if you look at the research on whole fruit, it's an immense amount of, of healthful research that's out there. And I think there's no doubt that these are healthy foods for the vast, vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. And I was actually just um, looking at a paper, I think last week, about um, the the microbiome of, of an apple, of, of a uh, sort of a conventionally grown apple and an organic apple and how beneficial it is on the diet 
on on the human microbiome and when you actually eat the whole apple, including the core, there's actually uh, a lot more beneficial kinds of microbes in those areas that we don't usually eat. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose it makes sense because traditionally we would have always eaten those bits because an apple would have been rare <laughs> and, and it's seasonal. So we would have eaten every little last bit of it, not thrown out like, you know, the bits of taste not quite as sweet as, mm. as the mm. outer side bit. Yeah, fascinating. And so, so, so what about um, juice then if we're taking the fiber out of that? Or does that change it? I mean, I, I do have, I mean, there hasn't been much research on it, so I should put, put that out there. Um, personally, I, I would put fresh juice that I've made with my lovely juicer as a different thing than those packaged fruit juices. Like I wouldn't mm. ever recommend packaged fruit juices, but I, I have let less qualms with the occasional bit of fresh juice that you've made yourself. And, and generally, I'll use the filter on my juicer that allows more of the fiber mm. to come through from that. But that said, I, would, I wouldn't necessarily have juice, like a, a fresh juice very often. I would have mostly, but I'd still have, you know, three or four plus pieces of fruit a day. Right. Yeah. 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 And let's make that jump from um, fruit to, to growing food to soil-based organisms. What, what's the research, um, current research on soil-based organisms? In terms of the, I mean, I think there's no doubt that that I, I agree wholeheartedly that that improving the health of the soil improves our plants, it makes us much healthier. So I think that that's that's one aspect of, of of things that has always been key to to organic growing, and and I think is is more top of the, of the mind of people these days than, than ever before, or at least in, in the recent history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's the other leap of going, okay, well, it's it's develop probiotics out of out of soil based organisms. And and use them therapeutically. Now, I think my my only caution around this is is more about making therapeutic claims before the research is done. Mm-hmm. When when we've come up with something that's that's somewhat novel, and I certainly we've eaten dirt off of our carrots and turnips and things for for ever, but it's still different from cons- concentrating up you know a certain number of species into this highly powered little little capsule mm-hmm. um soil from one part of the world which would be different than soil in my garden here which would be different than what would be in, in your your place in perth um so i think when we're using a novel therapeutic agent which i think this essentially is that we need to do two things one show efficacy and two show safety and i think probably safety risk is probably minimal but i still think that you need to show efficacy particularly before you start making lots of claims and i think my my concern with the the realm of, of soil-based organisms is that the therapeutic claims came out well and truly before any research was done showing efficacy. Now that is starting to be addressed and there's more research coming out there on on certain soil-based probiotic products. So I, I would say it's more a matter of going, okay, well, what research has been done on this specific product? What has it been shown to actually do? Because um, I think sometimes the leap is, is that um, the one is this idea of colonization and I think we sort of busted that a little bit earlier on is that they're not going to permanently stay in your gut so that's not so relevant um and otherwise you're going what does it do what do i need to take it for Mm -hmm. what impact it's going to have um yeah so i I think as i was saying is that as research evolves and get and more gets published i'll be more keen on using (laughs) the products when when we've got a more amount of of utility data out there efficacy data out there Mm -hmm. it sounds like there's there's we're still at the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, researching or even understanding or even knowing what what microbes are out there or uh, even in, yeah. in our gut. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like even when I'm looking at someone's microbiota assessment, there might be, you know, 90 different genera there in someone's 
printout that might be 40 or 50, depending on how diverse your system is. But still, the vast majority of those, we don't know what they do. You know, some of these have only been named in the last five or ten years. Mm. We have no idea what role that they play. So, so when I'm looking at it, we focus on the ones that we do know what they do, at least to some degree. Um, we know the ones that are potentially causing harm, the ones that are potentially beneficial, and how we can modify those populations. But you're totally right that that even in the human gut or human skin, there's so many species that we don't even know. We don't know the balance, how they interact. Um, and, and it's the same thing with soil and the other sort of um, microbiota or microbiome, essentially, mm-hmm. is we're, we're really at the tip of the iceberg and finding out more. And, and it's exciting, too, because I look forward to the the probiotic tools I'm going to have to – I'll be able to use in another five or ten years. They'll be far more like poop-type probiotics. There'll be a whole range of new new um, genera involved like Fecalobacterium and Acromandia and other butyrate-producing microbes. Um, it would be absolutely brilliant, the tools that will soon become available um, for us to use as clinicians to improve people's health. Mm. And, and even within uh, species – um, there, it sounds like from what I've heard you talk before is is there's so much variance between um, what something would do in terms of uh, probiotics um, and something that's you know uh, uh, pathogenic like E. coli. Yeah, no, E. coli I think is a, is a beautiful case in point because it is. Escherichia coli, it's one species, but we've got the one end of, I think it's the EO157 strain that can cause bloody diarrhea, kidney failure, and death. And the other hand, you've got Nissel 1917 strain that actually decreases gut inflammation and may well produce serotonin in the gut as, as two extremes of the same species. All that is is a few genes turned off or on that can dictate within that species whether something is pathogenic, disease-causing, or, or healthful. When we when we go into the the, the genera that we're, we're more um, familiar with when it comes to probiotics, we're talking about Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus. Now, mm. thankfully, we don't have to worry about any of the um, pathogenic <laughs> aspects because there's no real species within or strains within those those genera that seem to be pathogenic per se, unlike with E. coli. But they can still differ in whether they produce healthful effects or not, depending about what genes are turned off or on. And this is what we call the strain specificity of probiotic effects. And, and it's really clear from the probiotic literature um, in the past, last you know, 20 to 30 years. And that's one of the things that blew my mind when I first started delving into it when I was doing my honors and PhD, because I wasn't taught anything about that. So and you, you delve in deep and go, oh my gosh, you know, you can't even make species-specific health claims. It's got to be strain-specific because there might be whole 300 different strains of Lactobacillus plantarum. There's even more than that, but they, they will differ in so many different mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. that just because one has a beneficial effect one might decrease gut inflammation and, and decrease levels of, of pathogens in your gut doesn't mean another strain of L. plantarum will too, mm. unless mm. tested and shown to do so. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this this reminds me of when we talked to Dr. Rodney Dietert, he, we talked about horizontal gene transfer. Um, where does that come in? Or like, what's your understanding of that in terms of actually us um, um, uh, absorbing genes from from the microbes in our gut? Oh, gosh. I mean, that's not an area that that I've delved into to any any great degree. So I'm probably not best placed to answer that one. Um, I mean, there's, there's certainly discussion in, in literature that I'm familiar with about the bacteria passing their genes onto other bacteria mm. in the gut. Um, and there's some concern about you know, the, some of the more pathogenic ones that I have. have well, some have antibiotic resistance even some of the the, the sort of um, neutral ones might be able to pass it on to to more the more 
disease-causing agents in the gut. Um, but it's it's more about the theoretical discussions around that um, and risk management, et cetera, at this time point. Okay, so there's, there's nothing really uh, definitive on that yet. It's still in the early stages. Well, f- from my, the best of my knowledge, but mm. you know, if I did a spent two days doing a Medline search, <laughs> I might find that I actually just don't know much about this area and there might yeah. be a tremendous amount there that yeah. I'm just ignorant of. But yeah. that, that just shows how uh, how much information and how many people we really need to to research every single area of this. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit scary in that way. <laughs> it's, it's true enough that there's, we know so much more than we did 20 years ago, you know, as someone that, that's been observed that that increase, but we still have so much more to go. And sometimes when you delve in deeper, you realize, oh gosh, we need to know even even more. But but I think thankfully, uh, I suppose as a clinician, you can take that step back and go, okay, we know that, that eating a predominantly plant-based diversity of diet, you know, organic food, um, getting adequate sleep, getting adequate exercise and getting outside in nature. Mm. Other things we know are helpful in so many ways. So we can always go back to that. But even if we don't necessarily know the specifics of how these things are helping, um, we're learning more about how they're actually helping, but they still are are helping regardless Mm -hmm. of the fact we don't know how they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the sort of uh, founders of natural farming, Masanobu Fukuoka, he, he says, um, something along the lines of, you know, we can never know nature fully. We can never understand nature fully. Um, we just got to trust that it, working alongside her is going to be the best thing um, rather yeah. than trying to understand everything. I like that. <laughs> Gosh, I read his book in the, um, I wonder, well, maybe he's only got more, well, the, the one book about the, the farming system back in the, oh gosh, early nineties. Um, very inspiring. Book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so um, let's let's talk a little bit more about fermented foods because I'm a, a massive fan of yep. you know um, sauerkraut. I brew kombucha. I brew beer as well. Um, you know kefir, all those sort of things. Uh, share with us a little bit about your experience. Can you overdo them? Uh, what are the best things to to use? Is lactobacillus actually very um, probiotic? I would say that there are a number of, this is going to be a bit technical, but a number of lactobacilli strains that are definitely go far beyond the definition of, of probiotic. Maybe it, it makes sense to touch a bit on this definition too, because mm, we have this, mm-hmm. all of us have a, at least a rough idea what probiotics mean, but the, the technical definition that is most widely accepted at this point is live microbes, which would administer in adequate amounts, confer a health benefit mm-hmm. on the host, which is us. So the, and there's three components of that definition. One, they've got to be live. So if you have a a food or a supplement that contains dead bacteria, even if it's healthful and and to do health benefit, it's not actually a probiotic anymore. Two, it's got to have adequate amounts. Um, and you know there'll be some supplements out there that don't meet that bill. When some foods would meet that bill, they might have great bacteria, but if they're well and truly below a therapeutic dose, they're not going to actually have much in the way of therapeutic effects. And the third aspect is a health benefit. And this is where the definition in some parts of the world, they get, they're get they a bit very stickler on this one, is, is that they want, even if you bring a supplement to the market, unless you have clinical trials showing that the genetically unique bacterial strain contained in your supplement produces health benefits, you can't call it a probiotic. It can be called a uh, microbial food or microbial supplement, but not a probiotic mm. per se. And that's got to do with that the strain-specific benefit, um, nature of, of, of those things that we mentioned before. Um, of, of sort of medicinal actions or or medicinal qualities are strain specific, not species specific. 
So I think that's there. And and in the probiotic literature, they tend to divide up you know these probiotics that actually have well defined, well characterized, well researched strains that that are inside them, versus food sources of live and active cultures. And the, and live and active culture food sources would be sauerkraut, kimchi, what I call non medicinal yogurt, um, kumis, kefir, etc., kombucha. Mm. Because they they contain a whole wide spread of microbes, a big diversity of microbes, which may or may not have inherent health benefit beyond, beyond the nutritional benefits that you get from from the fermentation process and some of the bacterial products that are contained in those foods. You know, so I mean, I, I eat lovely spicy kimchi on a, on a pretty much daily basis and, and a range of other fermented veggies, and but I I'm not necessarily relying on them as as they're certainly not going to colonize my gut, and they're probably having minimal impact for changing the ecosystem for the better. Versus eating fermented, fermentable foods. Fermentable foods have a far greater capacity to shift your ecosystem than eating fermented foods. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, mm-hmm. and I think there's been a lot of focus on fermented foods, which is great. And I remember teaching my students back in the early 2000s how to make their own sauerkraut, you know, and get involved with with fermentation. So I'm a, a key lover of ferments and I still am, but I, I just don't rely on them in therapeutic tools in the same way that I would a well-defined, well-characterized probiotic supplement. Um, that's probably a long-winded way of answering your question. No, that's but, great, that's great. But the lactobacillus that you find, because typically you'll get strains of lactobacillus plantarum who dominate in a sauerkraut or a um, kimchi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just that we don't necessarily know the attributes of the strain. And my, the one that I have growing on my cabbage here in Tasmania is going to be a different strain than you have. Same species, but different strain. Mm-hmm. And yours might have fantastic therapeutic qualities. Mine might not. Um, we, we, you don't necessarily know. And you might eat it and feel absolutely fantastic, and then that, that's cool. And you might well have, have lucked out on getting like a, a brilliant strain that then if you keep that to recolonize your next batches, you can keep going forever from that standpoint. It's just there's that, that – it's the unknown factor of it because we don't necessarily—they're not so well characterized. It's um, not necessarily a quote-unquote probiotic. Yes, yeah, that's how I think probiotic researchers, such as myself, would 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 divvy that into a separate thing. And it doesn't mean that I don't absolutely love eating them and <laughs> they don't provide me with health benefit, but they wouldn't meet the definition of probiotic. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so that would be the same with pretty much anything uh, fermented foods. It's more of just a shotgun approach of adding a bunch of microbes that aren't even necessarily going to make it to the colon. Is that right? Well, this is where it could be different because if you – I have, a, I have a, a friend that makes ginger beer, but she uses a selective uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae variety Bilardia biocodex starting which – is which, is, which is the – um, sort of well-researched Saccharomyces that's been used as a supplement since the 1950s. So she uses that as a starter. And that's what ferments the the, the ginger beer. And then when she's drinking it, I, that's what you're getting. So you're not, so it's not a wild ferment. It's, it's, a, it's a controlled ferment. So you can use some of those well-characterized, well-researched strains as starters. And then I reckon you could say that they're actually probiotic foods. Interesting. That, okay. So you could get an isolated strain and use that to, to make your ginger beer. Yeah, and then then you you would get that that clear um, knowledge of exactly what's there. But if we're doing what we normally do of of just you know chopping up our cabbage, adding salt, and letting it sit, we're getting whatever strain happens to be on that cabbage, and that may or may not have therapeutic effects beyond just making that really yummy and 
increasing um, digestibility and doing other things that it's doing as part of that process, breaking down, you know, um, agricultural chemicals. There's lots of cool things that happen during that fermentation process, mm-hmm. um, which are independent of whether that strain has therapeutic qualities after ingestion. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So you, you can spike it so that you can do it. I remember making yogurt um, years ago and adding, um, uh, what was it? Oat bran blended up because there's oat oligosaccharides, which feed lactose rhamnosus GG, which is the strain I wanted to grow. But that strain doesn't eat lactose, so it won't grow in milk. <laughs> But it will grow if you spike the milk with something else. So you know. So with a bit of work, you can you can create those sort of ferments. But it's a, a different process than just the wild organic ferments. Mm-hmm. And then, so would uh, is alcohol gonna? Uh, if you're saying a ginger beer or, or you know a homebrew beer, is that going to counteract the effects of the Saccharomyces that's in there? I think it would depend on the amount of alcohol and when you stopped <laughs> fermentation. So in the pre-alcohol state, yeah. I think there's there's no doubt that it's actually a really good source of that particular probiotic strain. Yeah, you know, yeah. very tasty. You're getting good, and it brings the cost down too because you can use that one little capsule and make up a giant giant batch. So you're mm. sort of almost culturing it up yourself, which is which is a brilliant idea on on her behalf, um, which I share with patients now because I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, so if, if alcohol reaches a certain point, obviously it'll start inhibiting the, the, the bugs that are there and possibly decreasing numbers. So that would actually make it less of a probiotic food source. Mm-hmm. And then you get that point where the alcohol itself may cause issues. Now, where that the dosage level where alcohol becomes problematic in the gut is not that well defined, that we know that yeah, three or four standard drinks – definitely causes sort of gut leakiness, mm-hmm. um, increased levels of endotoxins, bacterial toxins reach your system for four or five flat hours afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but one drink is not going to do that based on our knowledge. So I think it's, you know, from, from a gut perspective, you're not going to get the, the negative aspects of, of alcohol from one standard drink. Um, but three or four standard drinks, yeah, yeah. you will get the negative aspects, um, which won't <laughs> counterbalance what you're trying to do with, with that. Very interesting. Well, Jason, you know, uh, we've gone through this hour really quickly. I think I have more questions now than I had at the beginning, <laughs> but um, I really <laughs> enjoyed the case. The case yeah. <laughs> really, really enjoyed uh, talking to you. Do you want to share with us where we can find your research, where we can uh, find out about what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think probably the best way of finding me is my website, probioticadvisor.com, and it's essentially a database set up primarily for healthcare professionals to learn, to to teach them about the evidence behind different probiotics and probiotic supplements and how to best use them in practice. Um, But then I also have a range of of courses on there too, some for the general public about meat and microbiome, for example, and then many others geared for for practitioners as well. Fantastic. And and a a blog is there too, which I don't get around to as much as I should, but it is there. (laughs) We'll definitely put the links uh, to that. Do you want to leave us with any words of wisdom as we finish up here? Nourish your microbiome daily. Have that on on the forefront or even back of your mind when you're making your, your food choices and make sure every single meal contains something that nourishes your microbiome. Fantastic. Dr. Jason Horolak, thank you for being on The Probiotic Life. You're very welcome. You can really tell that Jason knows his stuff when it comes to probiotics as much as anyone knows at the moment. He's on the cutting edge of research. So check him out, probioticadvisor.com. 
And yeah, I just really like the way that he has a balanced view. He's a, a researcher and a practitioner and a naturopath as well. So yeah, I would love some feedback on this episode and for any other episodes, give us some feedback. That'd be great. And I'm going to leave you with the wonderful Samara Jade and her song, The Church of Fermentation. May the beneficial microbes be with you. And until next time, cheers.
Or you can put them in a bottle and watch as it turns around and grows into something far superior and digestible in the end. Let's give thanks to the microorganisms for making their brilliant amends. From the fungi to the yeast, to the bacteria so divine, after all who are those holy ones that turn water into wine, we must honor those life processes that lead to transformation and bow down in the church of fermentation. And bow down in the church of fermentation. And bow down in the church of fermentation. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.